0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome, everyone, to episode 76 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this episode of the podcast, we're continuing our content-heavy month of January with another dive back into 2019 for part three of our 2019 in-review series, this time discussing our top five TV series of the year. With me to do that, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good, Scott. I'm looking forward to this episode. You know, TV is something that we don't really get a chance to talk about much on here. And um, we probably don't watch as much as some people do just because we also (laughs) watch so many movies. Uh, But there are some really good TV shows uh, over the past year when I when I sat down to make my list. I was surprised. I, I think I probably watched more in this past year than I have in other recent years. Um, and I was surprised at how many shows that, you know, I could have probably made a good top 10, honestly, based on the stuff that I watched in 2019. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about um, what was also an excellent year in TV. And you know, we talk about how excellent it was for movies, but it was a good year for TV as well.
0: Yeah, no, uh, you you beat me to the punch already. I was gonna I was gonna say that we've been speculating for the better part of a month now that 2019 might have been the best year of our lives for movies. Uh, but today we're going to be wrestling with the question of is 2019 one of the best years of our lives for TV too? And I think that you know, not to reveal too much, but I think that there is a a very strong crop of a handful of shows here that are for me some of the best of the decade now. I don't. There are definitely other shows from other years that are up there in that conversation too, but that very top heavy year I think for for TV. We will address that question head on in just a moment but first not I guess not like our top 10 movies podcast we're not going to be doing a consensus round and then a unique uh, or sorry a unique list round and then a consensus round uh, mainly cuz Scott and I actually watch pretty different TV shows I mean we do have some overlap and I've seen a few of Scott's uh, top 5 but uh, for the most part, we have pretty unique lists, except for one one show, which maybe that tells you that's the consensus pick of the year. Maybe I don't know, uh, but we'll get to those in a second. First, want to start with some honorable mentions. Scott, you had one that you wanted to mention briefly here.
1: Yeah. Looking for Alaska, Scott, was a limited series on Hulu, of course, based on the really popular, uh, influential young adult novel by John Green. Um, you know, people talk about the Fault in Our Stars, Paper Towns, which have been adapted. But Looking for Alaska is arguably his most famous and most loved work. Um, And there has been some sort of adaptation in the works for many, many years. I think it probably never came to fruition for a while just because they wanted to make sure and get it right because there are so many people for whom this book means a lot. And I'm not one of those people. I've never read Looking for Alaska, Uh, but I I really enjoy Paper Towns. I think what John Green does there is really interesting. So I decided to give this show a chance. It also stars uh, Christine Froseth, who will come up in one of my other shows that I'm going to talk about today. Um, but I think she's excellent and, uh, is a great choice for, for this character of Alaska here. Um, and I think that this is a really good show. I mean, much like Paper Towns, I think what John Green does that's really interesting is sort of unpack the, uh, unpack the sort of stereotypical characters that maybe we see in these types of coming of age stories. The, the manic pixie dream girl, right. Is the, is the term that you hear thrown around a lot. Uh, and I think that's kind of how, Alaska is set up. It's also kind of how uh, Margot in Paper Towns is set up. But both of the stories in, in part are kind of about reve- revealing how that sort of trope is a myth, right? And that what these people are actually like in real life is they're just people. Um, and that a lot of this mythologizing is just in the head of the, you know, the, the beholder. Um, and so I think that's really interesting and, and a lot deeper than I w- would maybe expect a show like this to go. Um, and I'm glad that they gave this show a a full series um, instead of just a film because I think that you get to you get you get fuller portraits of all the characters. I, I admit I wasn't the biggest fan of Charlie Plummer as Pudge, who is the main character. I really sort of only got on board with his character towards the end. Um, but Christine Froseth is really good, and uh, I think his name is Denny Love is uh, plays the Colonel, and, and the two of them are outstanding. Um, and so, yeah, this is a good watch if you like coming of age stuff. If you like the book, I think you're going to like it. And that that's one thing I've noticed is that even like some of the most devoted fans of the book, everyone seems to be all on the same page that they got it right with the show. And I think that that's something that's pretty hard to do. But I think if you ask John Green, he's probably glad that they waited as long as they did to, to get this series because it it's was it been successful.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I also don't have as much experience with John Green. I haven't read Paper Towns. I know that people I mean, people love John Green. People love those books. Um, so I'm glad to hear they, they did it justice, especially in, in a, la- a media landscape. And I think this is one of those things that, that just underlies so much of our conversation, even around movies at this point, but especially TV, is that it's so, I guess, easy in some ways to make a TV show these days. It's like to do justice to a, to a novel or a story that otherwise you know might be hard to make into a really adored or well-liked movie. Again, because you're diluting so much of the of a book down to two hours on on screen. Uh, and before, whereas, like, you know, most of the TV shows that people watched were gonna be on broadcast television, so like almost needed 24 episode runs. That there's no way you could stretch that book into like a 24. I'm not saying this book in particular, but a book into 24 episodes, uh, unless you're Peter Jackson somehow. Like yeah. it, it's just one of those things that's so hard to do. But in the landscape these days, where you know people are almost more interested, at least in for new content, and seeing a mini-series and you know, seeing an eight-episode run or, or a 10 or 13 episode series or a season of a show, it I it's so much, I guess. It's so easier to make that kind of content that that fans of of the source material material are going to be able to appreciate so much.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that that you're dead on with that. Um, I, I'm glad that they uh, chose this route because, from my understanding, they are able to uh, go deeper on some characters and add in some new sort of side stories that uh, weren't in the book actually, and that yeah. uh, I think amplify the series.
0: Yeah, and I'm mean, I not familiar with the series, but I'm sure John Green was closely attached, if not the the screenwriter himself.
1: Yeah, I think he was
0: probably very involved. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, Looking for Alaska, again, not not something that I saw this year, but uh, on the list of, of things for me, admittedly further down, but on the list of things for me to check out because it, it did come very highly recommended for you. And, and you know, just going off the point that I was just saying, I think one of the reasons why this year, at least for me, and I wonder if it's also the case for you, why I watched more TV shows this year, than in past years one because the content and quality of the content was so good this year but two because there's this shift towards you know limited series etc i mean we'll see in my top five list here i mean two of the shows i watch are true mini series this year i mean there's some question about whether another show is a mini series or whether it counts as a first season of a show and we'll get to that when we get there but you know my favorite things that i watch this year are very discreet stories that start and end you know whether they get a season two or not we'll see but you know two of those top three that I have here are like discreetly miniseries there's no way they'll ever get sequels uh, it's just it's just not how it works um and I just I really adored that because to me as I've gotten older and as I've moved away from being interested in, in watching things you know if, if something like house was on today I probably wouldn't watch it but it was one of my favorite shows you know growing up 24 even I mean I'd probably still watch that because that's an amazing television show but 24 episodes man it's a lot to commit to these yeah. days um for for me especially as someone who really one of the things that I love about movies is that it, it tells a discrete story. You start the story and it finishes, you know, in, in two hours and sometimes longer this year, but in two hours you, you get the conclusion of that story. And so that's one of the things that I'm attracted to. And one of the things that I like about a lot of the shows here that we're going to be talking about.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it does, it does, uh, however, make me look back on shows of old, like 24 or the West Wing yep. and think about the fact that or Friday Night Lights and think about the fact that they had 20 plus episode seasons and. They were amazing, right? Like there weren't really that many filler episodes in, in there.
0: Moving on to some other animal mentions here, Scott, two shows that, that I wanted to mention that we both talked about that just missed out on my top five. I mean, literally last night when I finished uh, one of the shows that made it into my top five, I, I bumped one of these off. But first, Big Little Lies season two, for me, really didn't live up to to season one in, in a lot of ways. For much of the season, I actually really enjoyed it, but thought that it really fell flat. In the final episode, I mean, one of the biggest storylines of the season, of course, was between uh, Nicole Kidman, Celeste, and Meryl Streep's, uh, her mother, uh, Cel- Celeste's mother, whose name I actually can't remember right now. but
1: Her um, mother-in-law, yeah.
0: Right, mother-in-law, that's right, yeah. Uh, her her husband, Perry, her late husband Perry's uh, mother, played by Meryl Streep. And I think that that conflict really fell flat at the end, which is disappointing. But otherwise, a really outstanding season uh, for, th- for the most part there. I think that Nicole Kidman does a great job. Reese Witherspoon uh, continues to be a, a force uh, on television that I think is kind of hard to rival. The fact that I, I haven't seen the morning show, but she got a lot of awards consideration for the morning show when she was on. And she has a, a show coming out this year as well, a new show coming out this year as well. It's much talked about at this point coming out in a few months. Uh, the name is just escaping me. I was just looking yeah, at it. I can't it last remember month. it either. Yeah, yeah but it, it's getting a lot of hype as well. So she's really becoming a producing and acting force in the TV side. And I think that she continues to do it. Really well the season as well. I think the standout for me in the season, though, it, besides Meryl Streep, uh, was Laura Dern. I mean, really the culmination of everything that kind of was 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 seen in the first season. I mean, you got bits and pieces of that of that um, you know character in, in season one, but you really felt the full force of her Renata in in, in season two. Uh, she had two or three of the best moments of, of of the season, and I absolutely loved it. I think a lot of what they were doing with Zoe Kravitz's character didn't really work for me. And that was one of the other low points uh, of of the season. I thought that it was a, it had the potential to be a powerful arc and I just don't know if they stuck, stuck the landing for it. So, you know, if they come back with a season three, I think that they could really take it interesting direction, especially how season two ends. Um, But I'd want them to really rethink how they approach some of the characters and how they create some of the stories around those.
1: Yeah. I'm in the same boat as you, Scott. I think, that they started off really strong, definitely fizzled out in the end, particularly, like you said, the Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep conflict. But I think whereas the first season was the better quality season, this season might have been more entertaining, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, yeah. And a lot of that comes from some of those performances you mentioned, uh, like the Meryl Streep is incredible. And Laura Dern, just her character just becomes unhinged at a certain point. And it's really kind of a uh, wonderful to watch. Um, yeah. Yes, several times. Um, yeah, she has
0: some of the best gifts. The, the, the gifts from Laura Dern's character from that show are just great. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, and, and, so it's it's a really solid show. I like that there's a show out there that is telling so many different female stories, yeah. even if some of them aren't as satisfying, like the Zoe Kravitz arc. I agree. I don't think they really knew what to do with her this season, so, but I like that the show exists, and if there's a season three, fine by me.
0: Yeah, you know, we didn't mention Shailene Woodley. She's like the one member of the cast that we didn't yeah, talk she's about She's really good, too. She's really good, too. Again, I,
1: I think it's one of those arcs where
0: they – they, I think, they really started off in the right trajectory. Like, I, I feel like I feel like they did know what to do with that character, and just something along the way in the season, just kind of it, just kind of fell off. Uh, not unlike that, they just didn't know how to land land the plane on that yeah. on that arc. Um, but really, really promising stuff for the most part. And clearly, you know, is it Jean-Marc Vallet? Is he the one? He didn't do season two. No, he didn't. No, Andre two. Arnold
1: did season two.
0: Andre Arnold, that's right, did season two. And, and I know there, there there was actually a lot of controversy over the summer when the show was airing that the editors really cut out a lot of significant scenes that the director, Andrea Arna uh, and the screenwriters had really Andrea wanted. Arnold. Yeah. Andrea Arnold. Sorry. Yes. Andrea Arnold wanted and shot and uh, was actually really upset about not getting included. Um, so th- I know there's some controversy there and it'd be interesting to see. I don't think that she would come back for a season three. I don't think that Sean Mark Valet is interested in coming back for a season three, considering he didn't really seem particularly interested in doing season 2. Uh, obviously he does so much different stuff for HBO. He had Sharp. He did Sharp Objects uh, in 2018 and he always has other projects going on over there. One of the best one of the best content creators they have over there at HBO, but uh whatever they do come up with, I'm sure that whether it's driven by Reese Witherspoon or somebody else in the cast, I'm sure it would be good, but there won't be another season in the next year or two, I don't think. Probably safe to say. Yeah, the other big one that, that didn't make my list, and again, this was the one that I had kind of teased—that was my number five—that just got pushed out uh, was the Mandalorian, right? I mean, we talked about it on uh, briefly, at least on the last episode uh, in the second half of the podcast when we were talking about Star Wars. But the Mandalorian—it had its ups and downs. I think if I had to say the episodes that I loved, I think episodes one, three, seven, and eight were just some like fantastic, fantastic television. Uh, some of the best set piece moments, honestly, in Star Wars uh, in the last few years, and. Uh, it, it was only just dragged down for me, maybe more so for me than for you, by by maybe a little bit of a middling story arc and narrative drive in the middle, in the um, mainly in four, five, and six, I suppose those episodes, especially four and five. Uh, but for me, Scott, it was a wonderful show. That Pedro Pascal did a really great job playing that title character, and and more importantly, I just think John Favreau and Dave Filoni just perfectly nailed the tone of the series exactly what star wars fans didn't know they wanted maybe I, I think it was a real return and then the variety of directors they had directing episodes i mean we talked about how taika waititi directs one of the best episodes in the show that's episode eight the finale uh, but you also have deborah chow who's directing all of the ewan mcgregor series directing you know fantastic episode three uh, for me again one of the best episodes of the series and then it, it just really communicates to me that the creators of the show and the people working on the show really know what works for star for a, well, one, a lot of star Wars fans, but two isn't gimmicky. It's not, I mean, yes, there's fan service elements in it. Of course. I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler considering it's all over the internet, but like the fact that baby Yoda is a big part of the series. I mean, that is fan service, but it's done in a way that's like really respectful to the fans. It just really nails the tone. It nails the atmosphere and it nails the set pieces, which honestly are some of the most important things uh, for star Wars uh content and media i think to make sure you it's not the only thing that's important but you got to nail the set pieces and uh, the series does it really well
1: yeah no i i think uh this was also probably my number six i really enjoyed it um talk about how looking for alaska was able to unite fans all over the spectrum star Wars uh mandalorian has kind of done that with star wars fans most everyone seems to be on the same page but this is a good series which is kind of remarkable but um Nevertheless, it, it is really solid, and, and like you said, I think some of the things to get excited about are what Taika Waititi did, what Deborah Chow did in episodes three and seven, which I think you're right are two of the best episodes for sure. Oh, I,
0: forgo- I forgot she did seven. That's right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and the performances, right? Like I think, yeah, maybe they they lost their way a tad in the middle. I think episode five is the one episode for me which I just didn't like, um, but that's probably the only one. But yeah, but and zero the-
0: payoff for that. Like it really teases something and it never pays yeah. off.
1: Towards the end, when they found their sort of central core cast of characters, right? Not just um, the Mandalorian, not just Pedro Pascal, but uh, Gina Carano as Cara Dune, who I think is a really strong character. You had Nick Nolte um, in there. You had Taika Waititi himself as IG Eleven, um, and and then Baby Yoda, of course, as well. Right. I think that that sort of team camaraderie is exactly what people loved about the original Star Wars trilogy, right? right. Uh, that you know central cast of characters, and so I think. Uh, Favreau and Filoni did a really great job capturing that. And I'm excited to, uh, see season two.
0: Yeah. Carl Weathers as well. Kind of joined that.
1: Yes. Um, Carl Weathers. How can I forget him? Yeah. yeah
0: no, it, joined the kind of central part of the cast. And yeah, it's one of those things where I, I kind of, I can't remember if I mentioned this on this episode or for the last episode, but it's one of the things where the, it's, it's a series that I did not expect to be getting a season two. I really thought it was a genuine mini series, you know, very discreet story being told here uh, over and done. But no, I mean, like, going on Twitter after I watched the final episode of the series and seeing that John Favreau is tweeting that it's been renewed, they're already working on season two, uh, couldn't have been more excited. I think that they will see the reaction to those middle episodes, um, and I think that that – there, are John Favreau is the kind of creator who's going to address those concerns and, and again in a way that is respectful to the fans and not just like caving to the will of fans or whatever but uh really giving fans what they what they want even if they don't necessarily know exactly what they want they know something the direction of something that they want I think that he's really good at at delivering that and I think that the Mandalorian just showed so much promise in its full cast of characters when in the first half of the season I wasn't really sure what other characters were going to be involved but then again like you said when they get that central cast and group in the final two episodes. It works really well. Um, Of course, Taika Waititi already started a petition to bring IG 11 uh, into season two, get the fans, give the fans what they want. Of course, Star Wars fans don't need to be told uh, that they have more power to demand what they want, but uh, no, I think that captures the spirit of the show. And uh... all right, Scott getting into the top five now, starting with your number five. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah. My number five is euphoria um, from HBO. I really enjoyed the show. It is something new in, in terms of uh, teen dramas, I guess, on TV, and that it really holds nothing back. And I think when I heard that that was going to be the approach um, of the show, I was very trepidatious given I, um, you know, so, some of my problems with HBO shows in the past, like Game of Thrones and stuff. And I, I felt like just having uh, an overabundance of, shocking content for no other reason than just for the shock value right that it wasn't really adding anything uh, of substance to the story uh and i think that there are moments in euphoria where i think they do go a little over the top but for the most part i think the things that really stand out to me about this show are uh, first of all the the technical aspects of it um so it's directed mainly by sam levinson he's the showrunner here he made a movie from 2018 called assassination nation which i think was kind of a mixed bag but was really impressive technically uh, and Marcel Rev is his cinematographer. Uh, he was on that movie and he also shot many of the episodes of euphoria and, um, this, is a, it's a visually stunning show, right? Um, it's not, not, you wouldn't uh, immediately think that that's, that this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a visual masterpiece to look at, um, uh, just because of the kind of show that it is, but I think it is, uh, there's one episode in particular, maybe the standout episodes largely takes place at this carnival. And I think, uh, the way the, the things that are, are done with the camera there is are is pretty brilliant. Um and uh so so the technical aspects are really impressive. Uh and I think Sam Levinson brings a real filmmaking craft uh to the series that I think elevates it beyond like, you know, just the cheap shot value that I think it does have in occasional moments. The other thing I think which is really excellent is the cast. Um I think. When you talk about teen actors, sometimes you can kind of get a mixed bag in a show like this with a large and varied cast. Um, but I think everyone here across the board is excellent. Uh, Zendaya, of course, being the star, um, I, and I think she is a star, right? This is definitely a, a more mature role than we've seen her play in anything else, but uh, she creates a very memorable character in Rue. Um, and But then going down the line, Hunter Schafer who plays um, Jules, um, great performance. Alexa Demi, who we saw in uh, Waves this year, uh, very good. Sydney Sweeney, um, there's the the one actress she plays Kat, I can't remember her name, but she's also really good. Um, and just going down the line, all of the performances are are really excellent and very assured and confident for um, teen actors. And I think that the show does a great job of um, shedding some light on the darkness of, you know, modern teen culture and how so much of it is uh, gravitates around drugs and sex and um, you know some things that they shouldn't be getting involved with maybe at their age um, and so I, I think that Sam Levinson did a, a really impressive job and I'm not surprised that this has been one of the most talked about shows on social media uh, even though I think the the very end of the last episode was kind of disappointing uh, it was just kind of a weird step for them to take. Um, I am very excited for season two uh, and to see what happens to this cast of character characters next. Uh, but you know, be warned it is an intense show. It is pretty dark. It is. I mean, mostly a downer. There's really only one storyline that kind of has a happy ending. So just be prepared for that. Yeah. Barbie
0: Ferreira plays cat. That's in, her. Yeah. In the show. And yeah, I mean, I remember when this show was being advertised, it actually aired around the same time as big little lies. I believe I think it had actually a very similar uh, release schedule. If I'm remembering correctly, they have this like lineup of back to back, big little lies and euphoria on Sundays. Yeah, and at nine and ten p.m. on Sundays. And I I didn't watch euphoria, and, and I'm a little bit bummed about it. I'm really excited actually. It's it's near the top of my list to to watch, especially because season two is coming out later this year in the summer. Like you mentioned uh, the cast being so strong. And you know what? I, I remember the original advertisement for the show is like, this is like Drake's show. Like Drake is like the executive producer on this show, which is so bizarre mm-hmm. uh, to, to me. But one of the things that I actually, as I went back recently and was doing research, honestly for this episode, was that this is actually an age 24 television show. Mm-hmm. This is uh, produced uh, by a 24, obviously distributed by HBO, but yeah. So that kind of grabbed my attention a little bit. I'd already planned on watching it at this point. Again, like I mentioned, it's probably number two on my watch list right now. I'm probably gonna watch Fosse Verdon next uh, from this year, but then go to Euphoria after that and uh, really excited about it and even more excited now that h 24 is part of it. And, you know, you mentioned Sam Levinson being the Assassination Nation director. That's not a movie that I saw. I know you saw it. You really liked it or I shouldn't say you liked it. you liked it, you liked it last mm-hmm. year. Um, but he's actually the director or sorry not the director the, scr- the writer for one of the most probably hyped movies coming out this year and that's Deep Water. Uh coming out later this year a, a psychological thriller. I believe I'm trying to remember who it stars. I think it's I think it's Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas. Uh which yes, be, shouldn't
1: be confused. Right. Yeah. That's the Adrian Adrian Lynn one that he's directing. Yeah.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adrian Adrian Lynn is the director of that. That's yeah. right. Mhm. Yeah, so he's he's busy. Uh, he's gonna have a busy year. I'm assuming he's still gonna be the showrunner on Euphoria, um, and he's also uh, at least wrote uh, this this very much hyped movie. Especially when we talk about your your pick for rising star of the year That's uh, for right. the podcast this year, Fawad Armas. So it's gonna be good. All right, switching gears a, a little bit here, going to my number five. You talk about kind of a teen drama. This this next show, not a teen drama, but not number five is the second season of Killing Eve. Scott, I joined this kind of show late. I didn't see season one until earlier this year. And then I actually, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it was after Sandra Oh won the Golden Globe uh, for her role uh, on, on this show as uh, Eve. Of course, she, that, uh, she is the main character. She plays Eve Polastri, And I, so I, I saw the Golden Globes and I kind of made it my mission to, you know, I'm going to go out and watch these shows. They're getting a lot of awards like I watched Bodyguard. I watched um, what is it? The... Uh, the Great British Scandal or whatever the one is with Hugh Grant and Ben Whishaw. Yeah. Um, and then I watched Killing Eve and it was right. I didn't even realize it was right before season two was coming out. And so I kind of watched them back to back here. And I just think that Sandra O oh and Jodie Comer, who plays kind of the, I don't know, antagonist, if that is the right word for her character in this show. Uh, her name is Oksana or Villanelle as, as she's kind of known as her assassin name. And just just something about the chemistry between these two uh, actresses that is just Perfect. I mean they just nail it it's one of those shows that it's hard to describe it really like anything else it's this cat and mouse game between this MI5 agent I believe it's five it's about MI5 or MI6 I think it's MI5 um, agent who's Sandra O's character Eve Polastri, and she's basically tasked with hunting down this assassin this serial killer uh, Villanelle who works for this kind of shadowy mysterious organization Uh, and you know, of course, does what she does; she kills people. And they start this cat and mouse game that it seems like on its principles wouldn't actually like would get tiresome and boring over time. But there's just something about these two performances, and I think in season two, especially Jodie Comer's performance, which just electrifies the show. And the way that uh, the season concludes, it's a it's a roller coaster ride. It's absolutely a roller coaster ride in a way that you don't necessarily expect. And it's a roller coaster ride that ends on a cliffhanger at the end of season two, setting up season three, which is coming out later this year. And at first, I didn't know how to feel about it. I was like, you know, I hope that they're not just setting it up this way to be you know, to, to make another season to keep people hooked and not and just trying to extend this tale further. And the more that I thought about it, honestly, I thought it was the perfect ending to the season. And honestly, I think they could even they're not going to because they're making season three, but they could have even ended the show on that cliffhanger. And I think it would have worked. Obviously people would have been upset, but I'm someone who kind of likes a cliffhanger ending on things, but it just works so well. The storytelling is fantastic. Uh, the showrunner on this one, I believe Phoebe Waller it, Ridge, right, is Phoebe Waller. She's definitely the creator. I don't think she's the showrunner, mm. but uh, she really does. She's the writer and it was created by her. I just don't think she's the one directing it. Cause she's doing so many, so much, so much other stuff here, but it's based off of these like short stories called Villanelle written by, um, Luke Jennings, maybe I can't remember his name. But uh, anyway, it, yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is one of the creators on it. And, you know, she's also someone who has she she just has her hands in so many things. I think that what she's doing is able and able to capture in her work. I haven't seen Fleabag, but clearly there's a lot of hype around that show. And and she's doing great things there as well. And it's just it's a great show. I think that it's it's something that I don't I don't binge watch many shows. I mean, we'll talk about one show here in a, in a little bit that I did binge watch. And that I believe you binge watched as well or at least have been tempted to uh, in the past. But uh, this is one that I had to resist temptation to binge. Cause I think that the momentum of this show just really just carries you straight through. You talk about the technical aspects, you know, there's some aspects, like, there's some episodes more so than others. I think the technical aspects really pop. There's a couple episodes, particularly in season two that uh, the lighting and it's set in kind of this like red light district basically uh, in this, in Amsterdam, I believe it is that, you know, there's these different shops and some of these, uh, voyeur like almost moments of you know sex in public uh public displays that uh leads to some very uh creative killings we'll say like that that villain that is able to do and i think that the design of those uh they really do stick with you i think this is really smart design uh but it's not going to be the technical aspects i don't think that that wow you more than the performances here scott and i just can't wait to see how this chemistry uh continues to develop and the story continues to develop in season three
1: yeah, no, I, I enjoyed season one of the show. I haven't gotten around to watching season two yet. Um, I hope too soon. But yeah, you're so right. The chemistry between Sandra O oh and Jodie Comer really is electric and really drives the show.
0: Yeah, I think season three is going to be a big turning point. Again, I think that I talked about how you'd think that this dynamic and this constant cat and mouse and back and forth between these two characters would get old. I think in season three is going to be the real test of whether it gets old. I think they're at some point mm-hmm. in the season, they're going to have to take a turn on how this relationship goes. I mean not to spoil anything, but like they have the opportunity, I think right off the bat to kind of change how the dynamic works between these two characters. I'm not sure that they'll do that or if they will fully commit to that. I'm, I think that season three will be a real make or break for the show. I don't know if it's going to be the last season. I don't know if it's announced to be the last season or not, but uh, season three could be, could be big. Yeah. All right, Scott, switching to your number four, which is one that we both watched this year. So we definitely can both talk about it,
1: uh, but go ahead. Yeah, another teen drama on my list. I promise there are no more after this, but uh, <laughs> The Society is my number four. This is a Netflix original series. Uh, just kind of came across it on Netflix pretty soon after it was released um, and was instantly hooked. Um, basically, the setup for the show is that uh, this group of uh, high schoolers um, go get on the bus to go to a field trip uh, and leave their small town, uh, and their the bus goes about halfway away from the town uh, it stops, turns around, and goes back. They're, they're told that they need to go back. The field trip isn't happening, and when they return to their town, uh, it's completely abandoned. Uh, all, their parents, every all, every, all the residents of the town are gone, um, and the there are like these tree lines blocking the you know outskirts of town, so they really are trapped in their uh, their town, um, and it becomes sort of a Lord of the Flies type story of them creating a life for themselves, even though they're high schoolers and, um, they maybe have to learn, have to teach themselves some of like the essentials of living. Um, and it's a really interesting and thought provoking show. I think that, um, it's, it went a lot deeper than I was expecting. I think it would be very easy to, for a show like this, to resort to just sort of theatrics and a soap opera, um, just because of the very nature of the setup. Uh, but I don't think that that happens. I think, much like Euphoria, there are a lot of different storylines going on, and and all of them, uh, I think, are none of them are really given short shrift. I think um, all of them are really compelling. There's an abusive relationship that's depicted that I think is a really nuanced portrayal of an abusive relationship. Again, not something you would have expected to see in like a Netflix teen drama like this. Um, And there's some real suspense uh, suspenseful moments that happen. Uh, There's some Something that happens when when Thanksgiving comes. uh, That's all I'll say. Uh, But that that creates some really genuine, some real genuine suspense. And even though I'm not a binge watcher, uh, there is one moment where like an episode ends, and you just like have to click over to the next episode to see what happens. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And so I I think this is a a really intriguing show. I'm glad that I gave it a chance. The cast is excellent. Um, uh, Catherine Newton probably is the name that people will know. She's kind of at the top of the bill, it plays this character, Allie. Um, uh, but all across the board, you I mentioned Christine Froseth, who plays Alaska and looking for Alaska. She's also in this series as Kelly. Um, and you know, just, just again, a, a lot of names maybe that you haven't heard of, but you know, very compelling teen presences on screen. I think a lot of them are going to go on to do really good things, uh, and I think that unlike you know Euphoria or Big Little Lies, like this show has a satisfied, pretty satisfying conclusion uh, and really sets up season two um, well. I, I think there was a little bit of time when it was kind of dicey about whether it was going to get a season two or not. But the show, I, I mean, obviously we don't know because Netflix doesn't release their numbers. But I think the show did pretty well. I think people, at least when it initially came out, were talking about it on social media a lot. Uh, I saw a lot of memes and stuff like that. Um, so I think that. Um, it's not too much of a surprise to get a season two, but, uh, an excitement an excitement nonetheless, because I, I just am really interested to see where the show goes at based on, you know, how season one ended, but really excellent. Give it a chance.
0: Yeah. This is one of those shows that, that definitely got a lot of attention in the late summer. I think this came did this come out in August, I think, or something like that. No, it was early summer. I think it was May. Oh, maybe I just watched it in August. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, it definitely got a lot of attention when it came out. Uh, I mean, it probably actually benefited Catherine newton also being not necessarily a star but one of the supporting members of big little lies i think it came out around then as well and maybe got a little bit of boost from that and detective pikachu which she was also in uh last year so you know people people had their eyes on Catherine newton and then seeing the show that she was kind of leading the cast of probably naturally translated over and you know this got good critic reviews as well i mean again nothing nothing that would be into awards consideration uh area but i think it's in the 80 percent on on Rotten Tomatoes and around 70 on Metacritic, which is respectable. It's very respectable. Uh, and and I enjoyed the show. You know, this is one of those shows. That, this is the show that I was alluding to where I was like, it's hard and, and sometimes not to binge this show. I think it just ended up being one of those things. And I got to the end of the year. And I, I think I watched this in August-ish. Uh, but I got to the end of the year. And honestly, I just, I kind of had forgotten about it. And I think that that's uh, w- what you were saying around the relationship, uh, the abusive relationship portrayed in this show. I think it it is a really interesting nuance to take. I don't know if I love it as much as you do, but I certainly think that it does does the does that kind of relationship more justice than like any other thing that you'd see uh, on television. So it definitely gets credit for that. I think it does descend a little bit into kind of like I don't know, like mel- mellow drama at certain points, and the nature of being a teen drama, and that's why it dropped a little bit. But it if I made my top ten list, it absolutely would make it into my top ten. I think it'd probably be in like the eight or nine slot. Uh, probably the nine slot. Actually, I'm thinking about the the nine slot because uh, right right after like uh, you know, the Mandalorian, um, Big Little Lies, True Detective season three, and then probably this show would be my number nine. Uh, and and it's entertaining, and I'm excited about season two. I think that it has a lot of potential to go a very interesting direction in season two. I mean, it, it's being alluded to at several points this season. Um, you talk about the fact that this talent has disappeared. It's being alluded to that they're in some sort of like alternate universe. Mm And I don't think it's that much of a surprise given, you know, the the premise of the show and, um, you know, the kind of feel, the kind of lost esque feel that, that you kind of get from, from certain elements of it. And then they, you know, hardcore lean into that uh, in that, in that final episode to tease their second season. Um, And I think that 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 is something that I always found the most interesting thread uh, in season one, this idea of them exploring what, what universe they're in or whatever, or what happened to, to their actual home and i'm excited to for that to be the central piece of season two if that's the direction they go and i think again you're right i don't know i think it might have been a little dicey whether it got renewed uh, for a season two which usually isn't a good sign for a season three at netflix so i hope that whatever story they tell it's a satisfying ending without a cliffhanger at the end of season two because i think that very i mean honestly very few shows on netflix uh get a get a season three uh, unless they're really crushing numbers, uh, it's just how their business model works. Um, they usually sign their stars up for two seasons, and then it becomes incrementally more expensive to keep those uh, going beyond that. So I hope that whatever story they are telling in season two, even if they're not, even if they don't end the season or in the series of season two, uh, they they leave a satisfying conclusion at the end because uh, this show has a lot of potential, and I think that I it's it's positioned for me to really love season two even more than
1: I love season one. Yeah, I'm excited.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Switching back over to me for my number four, sticking with another season two, not unlike Killing Eve, a show that I came to a little bit later, uh, missing season one. And that is Barry, the season two of Barry here. I'll get to it in a second. But again, like uh, like, um, like, Killing Eve, this is something that I came to this year. I watched the first season just because I was like, you know, this is a 30-minute show. I heard so many great things about it. I love Bill Hader. And I'm just gonna watch it. I don't. I don't normally watch comedies, but this seems like this might work for me because it's set in Hollywood and kind of makes fun of of certain aspects of, of Hollywood. At least the, and makes fun of the th- theater aspects of Hollywood. I should say because it's about this. Uh, the setting for the show is is Bill Hader's character, uh, whose name is Bear is Barry, obviously, as the title of the show here. Uh, he is a serial killer, and he's kind of disillusioned with his life. He's depressed. He doesn't really uh, know what. His life is like meant to to be. Is um he is a former Marine who has uh, PTSD. He works as a hitman. He's from Ohio, but the outset of the show, he uh, he decides to move to L.A. He just decides that he's gonna when he goes there to to kill. Uh, his next mission is to uh, to L.A. or whatever to kill this target, and he just decides to stay. He's like, I'm done with this. I'm just gonna stay. And what you kind of get up to here is a cast of really interesting, of, of course, the fact that it's making fun of theater, it's very melodramatic at certain points, but intentionally so, uh, to, to make fun of certain elements. Of the, and the supporting cast here includes uh, Stephen Root, who plays Monroe Fuchs, uh, who's kind of Barry's handler, his uh, mentor in, in the hitman world. Sarah Goldberg plays Sally Reed. He's kind of this other person, this theatrical troupe that Barry joins as he tries to become an actor. I guess that's the other hook of the show that I didn't mention that he decides to stay in LA and he wants to become an actor and he's terrible at it. He's absolutely awful at it, uh, the worst. Um, but it's something that he enjoys. It gives him life, it sparks joy. And I think that the, one of the central themes throughout the show here that doesn't really ever necessarily give an answer to, but it asks you is it more important to do something you're good at or more important to do something that you enjoy? And I think that, you know, what gives you life and brings you out of, you know, the hardest times of your life, being in depression and whatnot which I really appreciate. And then of course the kind of the most probably the most famous person in the, in the cast outside of Bill Hader uh, and the fact that he's I think he won an Emmy and a Golden Globe last year maybe uh, is Henry Winkler who plays uh Gene Gene Cousineau who is this kind of theater troupe head who's this acting coach. Uh, and just a hilarious character. Uh, one of the most iconic characters in TV, I think, for the year, on, uh, for me, honestly. Uh, just hilarious, works really well. And then, you know, season one happens. Oh, I should have mentioned another person that I really love in the supporting guest Anthony K- Corrigan, or Kerrigan. Anthony Kerrigan, who plays this character called Noho Hank, who's like super over the top, uh, like Russian mafia guy who's like kind of like loves Barry and just like kind of wants to, to hang out with him and be around him. And it's just a hilarious character. But that being said, season one, uh, there's this through line, as you'd expect with HBO so that yes, in some ways, it's a it's a serialized show. Um, and it has this through line narrative. and I think it really pops at the end and it leaves you on this cliffhanger of whether, you know, Barry did this very critical act and 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 killed someone and how that's going what the ramifications of that are going to be for the second season. And I think second the second season picks up expertly and it really wrestles with this idea of, these two worlds of bear that Barry has this hitman world that he's still being constantly dragged back into by his handler um, by, by, by Monroe Fuchs. He just goes by Fuchs in the show. Uh, and then also, and, and of course the, the debts that he kind of owes to that world. And then of course, you know, this new life that he's trying, you know, trying to be with Sally. It's his love interest, trying to be a part of this acting troupe and do something that he enjoys. And it's this constant wrestling of like, how can you be a part of something when you're so bad at it, even though it gives you joy? And that, that's a question that wrestles with, but also like how his past is coming back around to haunt him. And I think, and one of the things that elevates this show so much is someone who doesn't uh, watch too many comedies, especially not 30 minute comedies. I mean, Silicon Valley is probably the only exception. I watched that show and really enjoyed that, but that's like the only HBO comedy that I've ever really enjoyed. Never really liked beep that much. Um, but Barry really works for me. And I think that's because, it's a good mix of comedy and drama. You have these dramatic elements and satire that really work, um, but it's mixed with this really compelling story and really interesting story that's well directed in terms of technical aspects. Probably has the best episode, or at least one of the best episodes of television of the year, uh, which is actually directed by Bill Hader. It's the I think it's the fifth episode of the season. It's called Ronnie Lily. Which Everybody the, was talking about it. When yeah, it I mean, it, it's uh, absolutely stunning episode of television i'm I'm really surprised it didn't get more awards consideration at the emmys i think the rest of the season probably uh isn't as good as season one but that episode just elevates the entire season almost because of what it's able to do and it feels very different than other episodes of the show it's shot very differently technically in terms of its technical aspects um and just the whole approach to it is different and in some ways it feels out of place but it also thematically feels perfectly in place because what that episode does in terms of the narrative of that and how that fits in with the rest of the season, it fits in perfectly. And I think because of the particular story being told in that episode, the cinematic aspects of it, the technical aspects of it really work perfectly. Um, and I just can't praise that particular episode highly enough. But I also think that everything kind of comes to a head at the end of the season in a, in a way that um, it, it makes you question like what Barry's role is uh, in, in how his past life and his new life continued continue to combine and and what is going to be in store for season three. Again, I think that this is a show that overall wasn't as good in the second season as it's first season, but it is a show that man, I mean, you can crank through this show if you're okay, if you're okay with binging it. I mean, it, it is four hours a season, basically it's eight 30 minute episodes and they're like candy. They really are. They, they, It's mesmerizing to watch this performance on screen uh, from Bill Hader. I think it's one of his best for sure. And uh, I can't wait for season three. Again, I I think that the, again, the trend of the show might be a little bit downward for me uh, just because, again, I think season three is going to be really important for it to kind of reset itself and start to tackle some new themes and, and continue to engage the audience. And I trust HBO to do that, but uh, it's a question mark right now for me.
1: Yeah, no, Scott, this one is high on my watch list. Um, Like you, I, I, don't watch many comedies but just the setup for the show sounds like something that I would like just hearing you describe it there sounds like something that I would like and yeah I mean Bill Hader and Henry Winkler are two people that I'm big fans of so uh yeah the this this one I I definitely think I will get to sometime in the next year
0: yeah no and and I think that it helps it that it's only like I said 30 minute episodes eight episode seasons it really helps itself and Mm -hmm. I think that that's ultimately what probably gets people to like Press play the first time, you're like, okay, it's not a huge commitment. I'll I'll watch a couple episodes and see how it goes. And some of the characters are like definitely over the top, but that is the point. That is the point you can get kind of annoyed by some of the characters. And again, I think that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to show you how uh ridiculous some of these characters are. Um, but Henry Winkler is doing great stuff. I really love some of these characters, and it's just really fun to again kind of experience uh LA with these characters and you know, you root for the characters that you like, and uh, it's just It's always really interesting to see where it goes and uh the second season has this really funny subplot line with noho hanks anthony the anthony kerrigan character um that is hilarious and again he's the he's like the funniest character on the show yep okay switching gears to our number three scott i think for me we're going to start with your number three obviously but for me this is where we really enter like i think the upper echelon of television for the year for me we'll see how you feel about your number three now
1: yeah, no, uh, talking about binging, my number three is maybe one of the most bingeable shows out there, and that is You on Netflix. Um, season two, of course, came out this year. This is a show that initially started on the Lifetime network, and I don't think anyone really watched it. Uh, and then it got picked up by Netflix around Christmas in 2018 uh, yep. and became a huge hit. Um, and yeah, Lifetime season...
0: had canceled it.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and season two, I think, was just as big a hit, if not a bigger hit, just based on... Uh, you know social media and people that I've talked to and stuff uh, but it's easy to see why this is an incredibly addicting show um, and it's the story of this guy Joe Goldberg who's played by Penn Badgley um, who basically has this habit of um I don't even know how to I, I he's I, like stalking d- doesn't quite like sum up exactly what he does he obsessive. He's, obs- yeah, yes, he's, he's an obsessive personality he ingratiates himself to like um these, he fixates on the certain woman and like studies her stalks and that includes stalking, Stalk, right? Yes. Like, it, yes. Yeah. Very um, much stalking
0: included in this.
1: Yes. And basically does whatever he feels that he has to do to make this person fall in love with him. And then, you know, they have a relationship, but uh, as you know, a- as he go- gets deeper into the relationship, um, the bodies start to literally pile up. Um, and uh, look, this is a show that isn't like high art, let's, let's be real about it. Like the, compared to some of the other shows that we're talking about on here, uh, it probably com- might come off as a little silly, but at the same time, I think like there, it does reveal some things about, you know, modern society and like social media, internet culture, right? Like the fa- how easy it is to do a lot of the like very um, unseemly things that Joe does in the show. Um, and also the fact that, you know, some of the worst, abusers and personalities like this um, can come in very unassuming packages. Uh, I think that a lot of what, what it is driving the show is the fact that Joe is this awful, crazy guy and no one can really see it because he just looks like a nice normal dude. Cause he puts uh, on a blue
0: hat. Actually, that's actually the reason why they can't yeah, see it. <laughs>
1: right. Um, and I think that one of the things I like at season two, um, again, yeah, no spoilers. Cause this is, you know, a show where you don't want anything spoiled for you. But the way that they play with the fact that everyone else is, is not seeing the reality of Joe and kind of turn it on Joe and show how maybe Joe's perception is also clouded, right? That e- even though he's kind of portrayed as like this all-knowing figure and he has these like voiceovers describing everything about uh, women just like within seconds of beating them for the first time, Um he kind of gets uh, a wake up call at the end of this season um, in, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at other people, but also looking at his own life. Um, and I think that the the twists are are wild, uh, but entertaining. I mean, that, that is the thing about the show, right? Like I say, it's, 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 um, it's not high art, but it's just such entertaining television. Like you just want to keep watching. Um, my brother has recently watched the show and he like, He says that there are parts that are so cringy for him, not in a bad way, right? Just that moments in the show that the story has created that are cringeworthy, uh, that he like turns the sound off for certain parts because he just can't even bear to watch it. But he keeps watching the show. He watches it all the way to the end. Uh, And for whatever reason, it's compelling. And I think that the performances, um, particularly Penn Badgley, have a lot um, to do with that. I, I don't know how he manages to pull off this you know despicable character honestly, but make us keep watching the show, right? And and with him as the protagonist, so to speak, and dare um, I say, root for in season two. At, at times, yeah, and, yeah, and that's times. interesting It's interesting because after season one, there were a lot of people who were like a lot of women coming out and saying like, "Oh, I'm so attracted to Joe and all of this stuff. Yeah, like, common. I want this in a man." And uh Penn Badgley like was asked about that, and he goes, "Well, I'm going to have to try a lot harder in season two to like." make, make him yeah. make him even worse. And I'm not sure that he, he necessarily did that, but, um, well, his that's not never, his fault. right. Nevertheless, his performance is, is incredible. Honestly. Um, it's not the type of thing again, that would get awards recognition, but the fact that we keep watching the show, we keep uh, following this character, um, says speaks a lot to the performance. I think, uh, that Victoria Padretti, who plays sort of his new love interest, yeah. <laughs> literally and figuratively in this yeah. season, um, is good. Uh, I, I, I go back and forth on what, on how I feel about this character compared to Beck, who is the, his love interest in season one. I like Beck better. I I think I probably do. I mean, uh, I don't want to go again. I don't want to get into spoilers, but yeah, I think I probably do too, but I like that. They're very different characters. Um, and I that the way that they, they play around with that and that, you know, they, they, again, they're very different. And, and I think that, uh, uh, again, another show that's going to be interesting to see where it goes from here. But there's a nice cliffhanger at the end of season two. I like some of the supporting characters that they introduced in this season. Some of the I new love characters. 40. 40 is something else. But oh, yeah. I like like Ellie and Delilah and these other characters too. Um, yeah. And I, I I will be interested to, interested to see if we see some of them again, right? Because um, after season one, like no one, none of the supporting characters from season one really popped up for obvious reasons. I mean, but, Candace, but yeah. But can really only showed up at the very end of season one, but, um, sure. but yeah, this is just a, an incredibly entertaining show. Um, again, I won't, I won't defend it as high art. I won't say that it it's without, but you, flaws, don't need to. but you don't need to. Yeah. I think that you season two, man, it just,
0: I I came into the season wondering like, all right, how are they going to do something different with this, with this season? Right. Cause just if you look at on paper on format, it's very similar. You have this love interest that he's going to stalk. You have this kid who he feels protective over, which is again, almost a carbon copy of what you get in, in season one, you get, you know, this alternate, you even get this alternative love interest that he also has in season one. So like structurally, it feels like it's laid out very similarly, but they do something completely. I think they really do something completely different with this show, uh, with season two. And they really evolve. I think a lot of the themes that they're talking about. I mean, season one, I don't think you walk away with season two feeling Joe is more despicable than he was in season one. I think that he comes off looking a little bit better in some respects. I and mean, part of that is, I'll 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 bleep this out when I edit this, but in this season, I mean, I think that's pretty remarkable. When you actually go back and think about it, like he, they really try to evolve this character. And I didn't, didn't think that was going to be something that they were going to do, but they really do kind of evolve this character. And I, the end of the season just goes so far off the rails <laughs> for me that I think it, it kind of falls apart. Um and that being said, I think that when you when you take out like the first fifty minutes of the last episode, and then you're left with whatever is left over there, I think that what they do there and and the questions that they ask around kind of what what, what you find out at the end of the penultimate episode of the season, yeah. and then what you get with the end of the finale of the season, I think it's asking like super interesting questions, like what is Joe's deal, like why is he like why is he the way he is, what is he yeah. really looking for. Uh, in the people that he stalks and the people that he is obsesses over. And I think that's super interesting and not a question I thought that they were going to ask. I mean, I think that there's a pretty definitive answer to that question in this, in this. And I think that's fine. I think that as that is a that is a liberty that they should have taken. I think that making a statement about that is well, one again, I didn't even think they were going to ask the question, but two, I didn't even think they were going to answer. It. And I think they clearly answer it at the end of at the end of the finale. And that's that is one of the things that I actually really like. Uh, about it i i will say that i like as a as a character for for this for joe to obsess over and to stalk. i like beck better and i like that spoiler agnostic i like that from from all angles there i do uh, i do still like what uh, victoria Padretti is doing with this character for the most part um again i just think that the the links that they go to to make uh to make this show a real trip uh pun intended i think is just um it it's interesting. It's interesting what they're doing with it. Um, I'm intrigued what season three will be like when it comes out in 2021. They have announced they're taking this year off. Uh, it won't return this year. Unclear what time it will return in 2021. I mean, it could be one of the things where it's out in January and they just skip 2020 and it's basically the same as it is now. But uh, they are going to take a little bit of time off. But, I mean, this this thing has to be one of the most popular TV shows on Netflix. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like. Yeah, The Witcher came out also around Christmas time and it has been really popular. Uh, I got three episodes into that show and just completely fell off. I just I'm just I I'm actually told that that's episode four is where it actually turns and gets better. But of course um, it is. (laughs) No, I mean, I I was actually I, I went on Twitter and looked at looked at stuff. Oh, uh, that's a side conversation. I don't. I don't want to digress too much there. But this show is. I think this show is is doing gangbusters at Netflix. I think everyone's watching. That. I mean, like my girlfriend's sister watch, watches the show and who's young, who's like significantly younger. My girlfriend's dad watches the show by himself. It's like very. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's great. It's uh, I think this is uh, this really hits a lot of audiences here. And there's uh, entertaining is the first and only word I think that would describe this show. All right, Scott. Switching over to my number three, uh, I talked about how this is like the top tier of TV shows, even like even in a conversation around best best shows of the decade. Uh, it starts here with Chernobyl. This is a show that I just finished uh, this week. I actually, just watched this week. I watched the whole thing this week, uh, one episode per day, basically. And wow, I totally get all the awards hype. I honestly, I I when I was editing my list last night and finalizing it for this uh, episode, I was just shocked that this was number three on my list it just shows how good of a year it was for me and how amazing it was because this show is incredible honestly like you talk about technical aspects we'll start with that because um that's that's the thing that i think struck me the most i was surprised by just the technical aspects of the show are incredible uh i was at first confused why it was winning so many technical awards uh, at the awards show because i'm like i understand how this is a compelling story and bill Skarsgård probably gives an amazing performance as these it's all these and jared harris and are giving all these uh, amazing performances real life characters who um you know are very interesting for what they are able to accomplish with this disaster but the technical aspects are just amazing uh the cinematography some of we talk about 1917 creating some of the best images and shots of the year and it doesn't surpass it by any Stretch of the imagination but some of the shots that you get uh, even the kind of like the art cover for the show the poster of the show with this in the it's like this smoky or kind of water background with this guy in a hazmat suit basically spraying the front like that's an incredible shot in the show there's just shot after shot incredible shot of like the soviet block and that kind of whole r and atmosphere throughout the show that are just wonderful um I also think that the, uh, like I said, the cinematography and and uh, works really well. I think that the editing also works really well. What they were able to do with this, I mean, they really create some immersive, um, uh, immersive scenes, and with lighting, with uh, all sorts of aspects. I mean, there's this one scene in particular at the end of episode two, where these guys are essentially uh, tasked with going underground to open up uh, so these water pipes to prevent a nuclear meltdown, and the sh- it's like basically just shot completely in the dark. Um, and you hear, you get obviously you get a lot of noise from them wading through water and their radiation sensors uh, that they're using. But it's just a beautifully shot scene, and there's just a couple flashlights, and that's the only lighting they have, in, in, uh, in the in the scene, and that's it, it's just amazingly well done, I think, and just really remarkable. With that being said, I also understand all the uh, the performance hype as well. I think Bill Skarsgård, not someone who I really kind of think about in terms of top tier acting. Uh, anymore if I ever did I think that you know he I've just associated him too much with performances uh, like he had in Pirates of the Caribbean and Mamma Mia uh, for to really St-
1: Stellan Skarsgård is who you're talking about
0: yeah you're sorry Stellan Skarsgård not Bill Skarsgård I apologize uh, Stellan Skarsgård as someone who has like has these kinds of awards hypey performances anymore but he's incredible as um, the sort of comrade Sherbina, I believe is uh, Boris Sherbina, who's uh, a commie like he's a party man he's someone who's sent in to kind of lead this this recover or sorry this uh, salvaging what's left of chernobyl and and fixing the disaster that it absolutely was and jared harris is is also great as this kind of tortured soul almost who's the scientist who's put in charge of cleaning up chernobyl and preventing it to become an even worse disaster but then is also tasked with covering it all up at the end as well and and the kind of the psychological toll i think it takes on him something that i think they definitely could have explored that more um but but he does a great job portraying that for what it's for what he's given uh with it on screen emily watson is also someone who got a little bit of awards consideration for her supporting role as uh Tolmyuk, who's this kind of aggregation character of kind of like Margaret robbie in bombshells this kind of aggregate character of all of the a bunch of different women at Fox News and their complaints about Roger Ailes. Uh, Tolmiuk and Emily Watson's character here is this aggregation of like Soviet scientists. Uh, And I think that that it's an interestingly written character. I think that ultimately there's not that much for her to do, but she is like the angel. If Boris Sherbina and the Communist Party are the devil on Jared Harris' character's shoulder, uh, Tolmiuk is the angel on the other shoulder. And I think that it, it actually creates an interesting dynamic there as well. And going back to the technical aspects, I mean, makeup and design and what they're able to produce by creating this kind of set and production of, of Chernobyl it is incredible because obviously they can't shoot there because it's still irradiated. And it's still incredibly dangerous to, to be in to be in that area. It's still heavily irradiated and it's there's still an exclusion zone. Uh, you know, what is it? 30, 30 years later, 33 years later, there's still an exclusion zone there and there will be for hundreds of years because of what happened at Chernobyl. And I think that the main thrust of the narrative of the show, of course, is about retelling and dramatizing uh, both the the lead up to the disaster, which I think it does in a really effective way, which I was surprised by, uh, but also the, the way in which the Soviet Union is really the only place in which maybe one, this could have happened, but two, this could have been uh, you know this could have been fixed. This could have been handled. That this, there's no other country or or uh, group of countries in the world that could have banded together like the way the Soviets did to try to solve this problem. That's one element of it. And then, then the other thrust of the narrative is what are, what is the cost of lies? I mean, that's a very explicit one. They talk about it uh, from the the opening scene, uh, which kind of starts actually at the end of the show with the suicide of Jared Harris's character, because that's how how Valerie Legasov, who is the who's the scientist, died in real life. He committed suicide. Uh, at the end of at the end of um, basically his job of um salvaging Chernobyl. And you know the opening scene here is like him recording these audio tapes of the truth of everything that happened. Um, and and uh, the question he's asking is, like, what is the cost of lies? The cost of lies is Chernobyl. You know at some point, that's the debt that has to be paid. And then uh, the show it kind of explores uh, how far truth and how far lies will get you in different ways. And uh, I think it's a really, Interestingly, shot like beyond again beyond just the dramatization, which I think is again incredibly done, very effective storytelling by starting at the end and then rewinding to the beginning, working its way through like chronologically there, and then in the fifth episode going back in both the very end of the show and then before the beginning of the first episode. I think the the way that they told that story actually, I was questioning whether it would work really well, but it worked expert you know very very well. The whole supporting cast, I mean, none of whom I'd even heard of before. said so that's not true. Sorry. That's not true. Um, there's uh, Jesse Buckley is one of the those. I was going to say, cast. how is
1: Jesse Buckley? What yeah. Just,
0: like? Jesse Buckley, honestly, not given too much to do. Uh, one, one of the things about the show that I think it holds it back from being my number two or my number one of the year is that, I mean, again, this is a show about telling like the cost of lies and the full spanning cost beyond just the nuclear disaster that happened. Like what happened to individuals who weren't even i mean jesse buckley is a character who who lived in chernobyl so that's talking about a cost of someone who's you know not a nuclear scientist but lived in the area then there's another supporting character who comes in one episode who i mean i said i didn't know anyone else in the cast so that's just a lie but barry Keowen plays this kind of character uh-huh. in one one episode only one episode who's this person who's brought in to kind of help essentially exterminate a, um the wildlife uh around chernobyl because it's all irradiated so, the, so talking about like Essentially, I mean, this isn't a spoiler because I don't really think there's any spoiler in the show. But like, he has to. His job is to essentially go and kill dogs. Like, he has to go over into the surrounding towns with him and a couple other people, and they just shoot all the dogs in the town because they they can't they can't be alive because they're irradiated. Um, they could they could contaminate uh, people, and that is a very harrowing thing to watch on screen. And and he does a really good job showing the toll that that takes uh, on them. And this is uh one of the things that I think is both effective, but also limiting at the same time is these kind of vignette stories about people who work it. Yes. It, it's very effective in showing you the, this isn't just about the disaster that, that is created. It's, it's affecting people beyond just the people who live there because, you know, there are people, 750,000 people were like essentially drafted to build this, to build this containment area around the bomb site, And, you know, we don't know the ultimate cost of that. Like, how many people died because they were conscripted, essentially, to build this containment, uh, this containment shelter, essentially, around Chernobyl, so it stopped, so it, the radiation decreases. Um, and it's a lot of open-ended stories around that because the truth is we don't know the answer and the cost of those of 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 those commitments and those people being brought in. But it certainly costs something. Uh, and so I think that it's effective in asking that question, but limiting in that I kind of wanted to get more out of those vignettes than they did. And at times it felt like it dragged you away from the the central thrust of the narrative to show you vignettes. And again, I think that it's more powerful because of it, but at times it also left me a little bit distracted from the central thrust. And so it's this kind of competing tendencies there with the vignettes that it's showing. But overall, incredible, incredible television miniseries. Uh, five episodes, it's on HBO. Craig Mazin is the creator of the show. Uh, he, he won an Emmy for writing, I think, did it win for Best Limited Series at the Golden Globes? I think it did. Mm-hmm. Um, he won for that well. But he's the creator and the writer. Uh, it's directed by Johan Rank, um, who hadn't really been famous for doing anything else uh, before that. But he won for Best Directing, I believe, at the Emmys and the Golden Globes. Maybe not the Golden Globes, but, for, but at the Emmys. So uh, really, really strongly recommended. I avoided this show earlier in the year when it originally came out because I just wasn't in the mood for it. But I finally felt like I was in the mood for it. And, man, it's a, it's a really powerful TV show.
1: Yeah, no, again, another one that listening to you describe it makes me think that I would like it a lot. Um, government lies and secrets and cover ups and all of that stuff. Yep. I, I, I like shows about that kind of stuff. So um, you'll yeah, like. The film. Yeah, I want to check it out. There's only so much time in the day. I know,
0: right? You should just we'll drop it. Well, I would say drop it out of school, but just wait until the summer and then don't get a job. Oh, yeah. just watch
1: TV. True. I won't take the bar exam.
0: <laughs> yeah, forget that. That's, that's, that's pointless. All right, Scott, I teased a consensus number two pick, which maybe means it's the best show of the year. I don't know, uh, from a from a, I don't know, collaborative perspective. But, Scott, what is our number two?
1: Watchmen um, from HBO. Kind of bouncing back and forth between HBO and Netflix here for me, but I think, I mean, they are the two biggest hitters in, uh, in TV nowadays. But, uh, yeah, Watchmen is outstanding. Um, it deserves all of the hype uh, and praise that it has gotten, um, of course, this is adapted from the famous graphic novel by Alan Moore um, created by Damon Lindelof, um, who is known most prominently for Lost, but um, for also for one of my, you know, probably my number two favorite show of all time, uh, The Leftovers. Um, so uh, I was excited for it because of that. I've read the graphic novel a couple of times. Uh, it, however, of course, this is a sequel to the graphic novel. This is not an adaptation of the graphic novel like the movie that Zack Snyder made was. Um, it's a direct sequel to that movie. It, I think it's it's really interesting uh, because of that. It follows sort of the aftermath of what goes on in Watchmen um, and the fact that that police officers are now wearing masks and stuff like this to, to disguise themselves. Um, Regina King stars uh, as Angela Abar, who is this... Uh, her her alter ego is a sister knight, um, and she um, is a police officer um, who uh, becomes kind of drawn into this conspiracy of sorts um, when someone in her life, an important figure in her life, is killed um, by this mysterious man who... Turns out to also have a role in her life. Louis Gossett Jr. plays him. Um, and, but, but it's also uh, focuses on some other uh, people who have been affected by the events of Watchmen. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson plays this character, um, Looking Glass, um, who um, is a really interesting character as well. Um, Jeremy Irons shows up as Ozymandias, right, who is sort of the main antagonist from the original Watchmen. He's been exiled to this really strange, like, country estate where he just lives by himself and... A lot of his early uh, scenes and stuff, you don't really know exactly what's going on with his character and what exactly he's doing. But when it when it all comes together, it's uh, it's pretty wild to watch. Uh, yeah. But Jeremy Irons is, you know, he's someone who can chew the scenery with the best of them, and I think he he definitely does that here with this role, but not in a bad way. Uh, Gene Smart is really good um, as uh, you know another character that you'll be familiar with, um, uh, Laurie Blake from the original Watchmen. Uh, but yeah, Wendell just has this unique style that he brings to his TV shows. Like, I don't even know that I can pinpoint what it is that makes them so special. But there's a brand of thoughtfulness to them um, that really you just don't see very much in TV. And I think the way that this series engages with questions uh, of race, in particular, is is something that I was not expecting to see at all. But um, is really interesting. There's a whole episode sort of flashing back to the early 20th century when Angela is basically experiencing something that her grandfather has experienced and the racial aspects and also kind of the homophobia a little bit um, that comes into play there. Uh, it, again, something I was not expecting this show to explore. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a strange and out there show. So it's just kind of hard to describe what makes it so special. Um, but if you like what Lindelof does, then I think you're really going to enjoy this show. It It is truly like nothing that I've ever seen on television before. And I think it comes to a pretty satisfying conclusion. So yeah, I, I loved Watchmen. Um, and I'm glad that they are, have come out and said they're not doing another season because I just don't think well. that there's really anywhere for them to go. Apparently it's um, up in the air. Lindelof is out of a new season, but apparently... It's well, I don't year. want to watch it if Lindelof's not involved. But, um, but, and, and I mean, this is one of the things where Alan Moore famously like, is kind of reclusive, doesn't like adaptations of his work, uh, V for Vendetta being another one of his most famous graphic novels that has been adapted. Um, and he hasn't said anything about this new Watchmen series. But I think more than any other adaptation of his work, it really continues with the spirit of, I think, what he was going for when he wrote the graphic novel originally. Um, and so I think of, of all the adaptations, this is the one which I think he might actually enjoy. But it's an incredible piece of television.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the people that you mentioned that you didn't mention that I think also really works well for me in, in this show is Yahya Abdul-Mateen, the second character. He plays Angela Abar's wife, Cal. Sorry, wife. Jesus. <laughs> husband, Cal boy oh boy um and i think that he's really excellent in this show i think that he's probably one of the hottest uh actors right now I mean, he's just attached to project after project it feels like and he's doing great work and then yeah i mean damon Lindelof, he's just special he's a special creator i think he's one of the most interesting creators out there of course definitely most famous for lost but the leftovers is you know a show that's on, on top of my, uh, near the top of my list for things to rewatch. I, I try to prioritize things that are, are still, you know, going today, which is why something like euphoria might be higher on the list just so I can watch that second season. But whenever something slows down or settles down and I, and I don't have another show like that going on in the background, uh, it's definitely going to be on the list of, of things to watch. Cause I love Damon Lindelof. I loved lost. I never watched the whole show, but uh, I loved, I loved long stretches of that show for like the, the three, four or five seasons that I watched of it. And uh, I loved this, Scott. I cannot believe that this isn't my number one TV show of of the year. I think that when I watched this show, I was just so stunned by how much it just like, I guess, just transcends any sort of like genre identification. I think this yeah. kind of goes to what you were saying. Like, obviously, very mature content. What it's exploring here, it, it doesn't pull any punches, uh, both literally and figuratively. I think it's it's a it's a quite violent show at times, but. It, I think it really works that you know when you start the show or even before that right so when I saw like the trailers to the show I'm like I don't have any clue what this show is at all from the trailers like I, I kind of get that there's like some sort of like you know cult or extremist group going on here but I don't see how this is at all related to the original graphic novel. Um, and the show does it perfectly. The show ties everything together perfectly. And that's one of the things that I just really appreciate about the the vision of the show is, you know, there's a lot of questions in the first couple episodes that that build up. And I feel like it really effectively and satisfyingly answers all of them by the end of episode nine. I think it just absolutely ties ties a bow on every subplot, every narrative, every thread. And everything makes sense. That's the thing. Like, I thought that when you get, when you start to get some, a lot of the reveals happen, because in some ways the show from a lot of its, like, central threads is a bit of a slow burn. Like, the actual action on screen, definitely not a slow burn. Very, very action heavy. uh, Very, very driven in that way. But a lot of the questions that you ask maybe in the first two episodes, you're not even going to get hints at the answers to those questions until towards the end. Um, but when it does bring that all back together, I think it does it so perfectly uh, in such a satisfying way and in such a way that makes so much sense. The story just makes so much sense uh, that it, I think it's it just nails everything, every component of the show. And one of the things that I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet is the score by uh, Trent yes, Reznor and Atticus Reznor-Ross, Ross. I mean, yeah. whew, boy, uh, sign, it- s- sign them up for my life score.
1: I tweeted this out at the time, but it feels like so instantly iconic, right? Like you hear the music and you're like, "I have to have heard this somewhere before," but it's like, no, it was just in the last episode of Watchmen. Like that's yeah. just how good it is.
0: Yeah, it's so 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 good. And just uh, as
1: yeah. Max Richter's music for The Leftovers was the same way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then also, um, what? Uh, oh, I forget the the is it Ludwigson? I can't remember who did uh, the Mandalorian. Oh, what Ludwig Gordonson. Yeah, yeah, Ludwig Gordonson. Yeah. I said Ludwigson. I almost got there. Uh, fire, fire music. Yeah, no, great music. A great year for scores uh, in, in TV shows. But I think that it's just so well done, so well crafted. I'm trying to avoid just talking spoilers just because everything feels like a spoiler for yeah. the show. But the su- supporting cast is so strong. And again, like I said, I had no idea what they were trying to do with the narrative of the show, but what they do end up doing, the questions that they ask, the themes that they address. I just love the structure of it, right? I just think that, that – you get you, you would think that this is the kind of show that would follow one or two characters from start to finish but a lot of the episodes feel very independent they feel like there's there are episodes about specific characters and exploring specific characters um experiences and drive like you get one character about laurie blake or one episode about laurie blake you get one episode about looking glass you get this really in-depth couple of episodes about angela and her
1: family and and that's how the leftovers was as well like i just for context i know you you don't have that context for it but that's one of the other things i really like that lindelof does Like, The Leftovers has that same sort of approach.
0: And Lost does, too. I mean, that's, I mean, so much of Lost is, like, basically each episode is from a different perspective um, uh, of people on the island, at least for the parts of the show that I was most, that I watched for. I don't know if that changes toward the end. I don't, I think, did Lindelof exit towards the end of Lost, too? I think he might have. Um, I think he might have. Yeah, but anyway, I think that, that that is just something that is very... Linda to is if that's the thing. I think that is it is a trademark of his work, and it continues here, and it works really well here. It feels like every character gets a, gets a very meaningful and satisfying story arc uh, because of that, and you really just learn a lot about these characters. And like I said, it, it wraps up in a really satisfying way.
1: Yeah, it's great. He he just has a way of creating like a world that you want to learn more about, like yeah. he did it with the leftovers too.
0: Yeah, I can't wait. You know, I don't. It doesn't seem like I. Th- I think he is really. Uh, over and done with with watchman if hbo does move forward with the season two i don't think he'll be a part of it but i'm excited about whatever he does next
1: yeah for sure and you all gotta right. watch the leftovers
0: <laughs> yeah no i i will I, I don't know if it'll happen this year but it will happen in the next two years great all right scott your number one of 2019 what is it
1: yeah no i mean this is so three seasons in this is a season three is my number one and uh very confidently can say this is now one of my all-time favorite shows. Like, I think it has earned the that right after three incredible seasons, uh, and that is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. Uh, this show is just a, a delight. Um, I don't, like, the, the, the thing about the show, right, is that there's not a ton of conflict in the show. Um, there's not a ton of, like, dramatic tension, but I kind of enjoy it more because of that. It's just, so much fun to watch the characters are so engaging um and it's beautiful to look at the music is great it's just like you just want to live in this world um and it's just pure escapism And, and like when i watch tv because i don't watch that much tv um i like things that are escapism and i think that this is just like the best example of that um it's created of course by amy sherman palladino and her husband daniel palladino who created one of my favorite shows uh, of all time, another one of my favorite shows of all time, which is Gilmore Girls. Um, and it has that uh, same rapid fire dialogue uh, that was made so famous in Gilmore Girls. Um, and it has the same thing here. And it just sort of transplants it to this 1960s setting, uh, of course. And also just like um, Gilmore Girls, you have this central duo at the heart of the story that just have Im- amazing chemistry. Uh, and here it's, Midge, played by Rachel Brosnahan, and uh, Susie, played by Alex Borstein, um, very much like Rory and Lorelai from Gilmore Girls. They they just, again, they have the incredible spark when they're on screen together, um, and the dialogue, they just play off of each other so effortle- effortlessly at this point, uh, so deep into season three. You know, on paper, this isn't necessarily a show that I would love. I, I'm not like a huge stand-up comedy fan or anything like that, but... Again, for all the reasons I've said, I think it's so much more than a show about stand up comedy. And um, I think the show, I think it's a funny show, but I don't actually ever really laugh very much at Midge's stand up routines. Um, Maybe by design, maybe not, I don't know. But although I will say, there was one joke this season which made me laugh so hard uh, when she says, (laughs) Why is it that men are allowed to fail and women aren't? A man fails and they say, Oh, at least you gave it the old college try a woman fails and people say, at least you gave it the old college try, but should you really be in college? Uh, that one killed me. Uh, I don't know what it was, but it, it's very funny. But, um, but yeah, I, I think there's been some like critiques of the show, maybe not necessarily confronting like the privilege that these characters have and like, okay. Yeah. They're, they're very wealthy, right? Like the, the Mazels and obviously Joel's family as well. Joel played by Michael Zegan, who is, um, midge's ex-husband um everyone in the show seems is generally pretty well off but like sometimes like i said you just want escapism you just want to live in this world um i don't think that this show necessarily needs to confront those types of things i just don't think it's that type of a show with that being said the ending of season three no spoilers but like maybe is going to kind of go in that direction i don't really know but um uh, there's there's an opportunity for them to. and frankly i don't care whether they do or not but but, yeah, but the supporting cast is great as well. Tony Shaloub and Maren Hinkle, who play um, Mitch's parents, are so entertaining. Uh, Kevin Pollack plays Joel's dad, and he's great. But scenes between him and, and Tony Shalhoub are just are fantastic. Um, Luke Kirby is Lenny Bruce, uh, and he's one of my favorite characters in the show. There's one episode in season three in particular that is kind of just the two of... Of them, of, of that's just Midge and Lenny, Lenny Bruce, and it might be my favorite episode of the whole series. It's it's an absolutely wonderful episode, and yeah, what, what more can I say? The show is just so, so much fun to watch, brings me such joy to watch, and that's really what what I want from uh, a TV show like this. Um, and if you haven't checked it out, what are you waiting for? Because it's perfect.
0: And one of the things that strikes me that I'm surprised about, just to add on to what you were saying, rather than repeat anything from season one and two that I've been watching here, is just the camera work actually surprises me a lot. I mean, there's yeah, some incredible really cinematography in this show, and I mean, it's definitely one. I was going through kind of the creative arts Emmys, and it and it definitely has won a lot of a lot of uh, design awards and and technical awards, and that's just something that I don't feel like anyone ever talks about. I just think some of the cinematography and the long shots in this in this TV show are, are really quite impressive. Yeah, no, I, mean, no,
1: I, I I, totally agree. I think it's a it's a technically impressive show, even if you don't necessarily um, realize it in the moment. It it definitely is.
0: Yeah, it's just one of those things that I was a little I was taken, not taken aback, but I was surprised in a good way by because no one ever talks about the technical aspects of Maisel, I feel like. But mm-hmm. uh, it really is technically quite impressive. All right, Scott, that's your number one. My number one, you talked about bouncing back and forth between HBO and Netflix, and I'm going back to Netflix for this one for a mini series. Uh, that really just affected me, I think, more than any other show has probably this decade. Uh, probably probably would be my number one of the decade. I actually uh, still think it's the best thing that uh, was released this year, better than 1917, better than Parasite. And that is unbelievable. It's a mini series on Netflix that kind of chronicles or dramatizes uh, kind of two stories that merge into, into ultimately into one. But it's a a series. It's a series of of rape cases, essentially, in Washington and Colorado. Uh, Caitlin Dever plays one of the lead. There's three lead roles. Caitlin Dever plays this character uh, named Marie Adler, who is a victim of sexual assault in Washington State. And uh, basically, the first episode is just it's just about her. Uh, it chronicles her. Uh, well, one her basically the aftermath of, of the sexual assault that she experiences. And how essentially no one believes her. The police don't believe her. And she's ultimately even accused of a false report and taken and actually becomes a defendant in a criminal trial about a false report uh, that happens. And just the lack of support that she receives by the system. Uh, in a single episode, in a single 60-minute episode, I've just never seen something so accurately portray the reason why women, and I mean, to some extent, men as well, I suppose, although I think there's different dynamics that involved with men not coming forward to report, but women especially, why they don't report and go through traditional channels or talk about their experiences. Uh, the fact that not only do the police not believe her, but her friends, her family, they don't support her at all. Uh, they doubt her. They question her experience and to the point where she Feels like it will be easier for her to recant everything and say nothing ever happened and she made it all up. And it's equal parts heartbreaking and compelling in, in a way that is not necessarily inspiring, but really just drives at the core of this, I think, this question that is constantly asked every single time there's any public figure who's accused of sexual assault, sexual assault, like, oh, why are they bringing it out now? Why didn't they? do X, Y, Z things. And I think this, this first episode of the series answers those questions in such an effective way. Uh, I think if you couple this with something like share from earlier this year, as well as an HBO film, um, I think that you just have probably the best year for dramatizations. Uh, that's, I mean, that's not a true story. I don't think, but, uh, they just really capture, I think, why people don't talk about their experiences and don't uh, don't do don't do these things. And unbelievable, especially. It's just absolutely amazing. But there's also the second component of it as well, right? I talked about that's the first episode, and, and that is a through line through the entire series. Absolutely, it sticks with Marie Adler's character and and keeps going back to her experience. But there's the second component that's these two detectives in Colorado, uh, specifically. I guess maybe the first one that that we that the show brings our attention to, played by Merritt Weaver. Uh, the detective's name is Karen Duval. She's in golden Colorado. She has this um, rape case that she's been assigned as a detective that she has to get to the bottom of. And there's something about it. The stumps her. just, the guy is too good at what he does is methodology kind of escapes uh, any notice uh, or any ability to like, actually create leads from what he's doing. And she kind of teams up with this other detective in a, in a different County in Colorado uh, the Westminster police department, detective Grace Rasmussen played by Tony Collette. And this kind of trio of women at the center of this miniseries are just absolutely remarkable. I think Caitlin Deaver's performance for completely different reasons is amazing, but also the story and these characters played by Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette, these two detectives are also equally incredible. I think that their performances uh, as these two detectives and the journey that they go on together and trying to catch, you know, the serial rapist uh, is just it's it's really well performed it's really well told story the creator uh, of the series is uh, this is trio Susanna Grant Islet Waldman and Michael Chabin and it's based off again a true story uh, which was reported on I believe and I can't remember the article that reported it um, but it's um, a true story that happened in 2008 into uh, the well I should say uh, the Caitlin Deaver's timeline takes place in 2008 uh, but the detectives are in 2011 and the two stories do link up ultimately. I think it's not a spoiler to say that the reason why you're seeing these two stories juxtaposed to each other is that it's the same rapist. And uh, the the two stories come together in a way. And these two different stories that are told are just so affecting and so powerful as someone who was, is deeply invested in supporting survivors of sexual violence from things that I, from the experiences that I had in college in terms of being a part of uh you know, supporting these types of survivors who have these particular experiences in college. But uh, that extends beyond that. And I think that so many of the questions that I often found myself answering from people in college and even since then who hear that I do did that kind of work, I think that I should just tell them to go watch Unbelievable. And I think that they'd understand uh, things a lot better. And I think beyond that too, for those people who might be less interested than I am in that particular narrative thread is that it's a really just compelling detective story too, detective mystery. And it's constructed really well. It's told really well. It really hooks you. It gets your it gets its hooks into you pretty quickly, I think in episode two or three. If you think this first episode's slow and doesn't grab you. Uh, the detective component uh, introduced in season two in episode two, I think really well. And I just can't speak highly enough. I'm, I was so happy to see this get a few nominations at the Globes um, and then various other award shows throughout the season. It did, I believe, fire some fire blanks on winning. Maybe did did it win anything at at one of the acting? Or not, I can't uh, Critics
1: Choice it won a uh, Tony Collette won.
0: Tony Collette won. Yeah, I mean, pr- for me, my pick would be Merritt Weaver winning. I mean, they really are all lead roles. I think that Merritt Weaver and Col- Tony Collette came in as supporting roles, and Caitlin Dever got the lead role. But um, just a fantastic show. If uh, you have any inclination whatsoever uh, to watch the show, watch it. And if you don't, watch it anyway.
1: Yeah, no, I started watching this show, Scott. It is very hard to watch um, yeah. at times, which is probably why I've had, you know, why I still haven't finished it yet. Yeah. Um, but I completely agree with everything you said based on, you know, the episodes I've seen. I think I got kind of like halfway through maybe three or four episodes and it, it, it really does portray uh, all of the reasons why survivors don't come forward to your, to your point. Um, so, so accurately. Um, and I think it's it's a very necessary show now more than ever, um, and I'm glad that they had such great actresses attached to it as well because I think that they uh, elevate the material even further.
0: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you talk about the great actresses attached to it and just the, particularly the dynamic not just in the performances, but I think also in the characterizations of Merritt Weaver's detective and Tony Collette's detective show you two like very genuine perspectives on like handling these things. And no, one of them are both, you know, one, one is not necessarily right or wrong, but you get this Merritt Weaver detective who's like very tender, very, very, um I don't know what the right word is like soft. The performance is understated. It's a very soft uh, performance. And then you have Tony Collette who comes in almost like a wrecking ball and the kind of detective that she is. And I think that you get those two performances combined on screen and that dynamic too just plays so perfectly, I think, and talk about handling these, you know, these survivors of of these experiences. I think that that's why I ultimately, I think, go with Merit Weaver because I think it shows you how really to support these survivors well. But then also uh, you have Tony Collette's side of it as well, I think is also really well done. Awesome. Well, that is it. That is our top five TV series of the year. I think you might have heard of one of Scott Harvey's top TV shows of all time. You definitely heard about one of my uh, top TV shows at all time in there, if not a couple. Um, but Scott, that should do it for episode 76. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today?
1: I'm sure that I do, uh, mm-hmm. and I probably just can't think of it right now. Um, just Maisel season four. <laughs> Maisel season four, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. And season two of The Society. Again, the, yep. the next seasons of all this Stuff that I've been talking about. There's probably something new out there. I, Hulu just announced some stuff, which I think looks interesting. There's this Nicholas Holt and L Fanning show that they're going to be doing. And also this um, this a High Fidelity series with Zoe Kravitz, um, I believe, is, is who's in the lead there. That I think could be interesting. But I know Netflix is going to put out a bunch of good stuff, too. Yeah,
0: I mean, Netflix is spending $17 billion on content. They're going to put out something this year right here. Sheesh. <laughs> not excited for the Lord of the Rings show at Amazon?
1: Huh. What do you think? No,
0: the answer is no. no. There you go. No, that that's uh, there is a lot of good shouts there. I mean, like you said, you know, a good handful, if not the majority of what we just talked about are all shows that uh, have have next seasons coming. If not this year, then in the near future, I think, you know, everything except unbelievable Watchmen and Chernobyl and you all have new seasons coming out this coming year. So there's plenty there uh, on the table, but. I'm watching the outsider right now, which is an HBO mini series, the two episodes end at the time of recording. Cause that's how many have been released and we'll see how that ends up. But again, like there's just so much great content out there uh, right now to go watch. I've already seen Dracula, which I'd recommend as a, as a new take on uh, the kind of classic Bram Stoker Dracula story, definitely a creative spin by Stephen Moffat and uh, Mark Gaddis over there. And what they do is always really interesting. I think if it, even if it doesn't always work, but it's really interesting. Uh, So yeah, go watch some TV uh, when you're taking some breaks from watching movies.
1: Yeah. And I just got started on sex education season two, another Mm -hmm. show that I didn't get a chance to talk about here, but uh, another one of my favorites from this past year was uh, sex education, which a British show kind of set in an Americanized high school. uh, But, very funny good performances i like
0: it a lot all right there you have it guys lots of tv shows to check out if you haven't seen those already definitely definitely check them out where can people find you on twitter scott
1: at scarby dent
0: awesome and i can be found at shelton 2013 on twitter where you can also find our podcast at media plug pods we'd love it if you follow us over there but we'd love it even more if you checked out our podcast patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods over there there's a bunch of different reward tiers uh, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast we'd appreciate it, even if it's at the one dollar level again that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods check it out for yourself if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's okay you can still find us on apple podcasts on spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcasts where we'd appreciate it. if you rated and reviewed us subscribed shared everything just tell your friends about it if you have a friend that's interested in tv share this episode with them we talk about tv uh, a lot here obviously and uh, we think we uh had a good time with it i think this is a a good discussion and something uh maybe a a way someone could get into the podcast here just through this episode so thank you so much for listening to us talk about tv shows this time usually it's movies but tv shows this time we'll be back next week don't worry with the discussion of our first 2020 movie it will be the guy richie crime drama the gentleman until then for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time